Hi, everybody. It's Joey Remini here from seekingbalance.com.au. I'm a vestibular audiologist and neuroplasticity therapist focused on chronic vertigo and tinnitus conditions. And today I have a real treat because I have Miriam Westcott with me, who is an audiologist who's quite experienced and I want to say expert in the field. It's not very often I say that for clients with interesting forms of tinnitus. So we're going to have a chat today and, and potentially introduce a few new ideas to you guys out there who are experiencing debilitating tinnitus. So Miriam, it's a great pleasure and welcome to the call today. Thank you. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself? So you work at the Denise Westcott Moore Audiology Clinic, which is Melbourne, Australia, and you have a very special client load in that you work not only um, just exclusively with hearing aids, but also take an interest in helping people with debilitating tinnitus, hyperacusis, misophonia, acoustic shock disorder, and tonic tensor tympani syndrome, triple TS. Did I, get, did I get all of them? Was there anything yes, else? <laughs> that sums it up quite nicely. So why don't you introduce to people a little bit about how you got into this obscure field and this you know, highly needed area of supporting people with, let's face it, incredibly invisible uh, disorders and conditions. How did you get into it? And then what we're going to do on this call is explain the difference between each of these tinnitus, hyperacusis, misophonia, acoustic shock disorder, and triple TS, tonic tensor tympani syndrome. So explain how you got into this and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive deep. I think it, it does help to have a little bit of background. So I've been doing this sort of work for pretty much close to 24 years. And mm. um, when I started out, uh, the very first client I saw was a client who had um, had a car accident and he had mild tinnitus. And in the space of not that long a time, maybe a year or two, he had developed extreme levels of tinnitus and probably is the most severe patient with hyperacusis I've ever seen. Now, I was very intrigued by that. I wanted to know how did that progression occur. I was deeply fascinated. And for those people listening who may never have heard this word hyperacusis, do you want to go ahead and just explain in simple terms what that means? Hyperacusis is an abnormal intolerance of everyday sounds, mm -hmm. perhaps most typically loud sounds, sounds that have an impact quality, unexpected sounds, sounds near the ear. And when people hear these sounds, the brain highlights them both in prominence and volume. Yep. And the um, sounds typically cause some degree of physical discomfort. They might hurt or they might cause strange symptoms in the ears. Uh, research that I've carried out over the years, um, supported by some bigger research coming from the Tinnitus Research Initiative in um, Germany, has indicated that if people are sufficiently distressed by their tinnitus to seek some assistance, so that's a proportion of people with tinnitus, then they may be vulnerable to developing hyperacusis in about 50% of cases. Mm. So sometimes the strong tinnitus reaction may actually be a hyperacusis situation. And it's quite understandable that people who have um, distressing levels of tinnitus may well become consciously and or subconsciously fearful that external sounds could make their tinnitus worse. Yeah, so I just want to reiterate here. So what can happen is 
sounds within the body are absolutely normal for normal people. So it's not that we're, we're suggesting that hearing sounds is a problem, but when people have distressing or severe tinnitus, the regular day-to-day -day sounds both occurring within their head and their ears and their body and outside start to become perceived by the brain as a threat. So it's like, you know, if you're walking down the street and someone drops a, an actual bomb in a war zone, it's super normal to go into fight, flight, freeze or terror or shock or to want to run. But if someone drops a fork and you're having that kind of intense response or agitation, it becomes much more socially challenging and it can lead to a lot of self-shaming and why am I like this and what's wrong with me when there's essentially a miscalculation or calibration happening between the brain parts of our auditory system that are interpreting sounds, making a mistake, and between the signals traveling around the inner ears and the brainstem. So they're kind of healthy level sounds. They're not damaging, are they, Miriam? No, no. I mean, it's, it's um, um, when people have physical discomfort in response to um, certain everyday sounds, it's very easy to think that they are being damaged by those sounds. Now, I believe people mm -hmm. are not being damaged by those sounds and the physical discomfort is coming from uh, a mid-ear muscle spasm, which we call tonic tensor syndrome. Mm. So I've been intrigued by that also for a long time, how that yeah. manifests in, in, um, in my clients. Um, it's certainly very common in people with tinnitus. It's even more common in people who have hyperacusis. Yep. So um, that's, yeah, that's kept me preoccupied for a long time. I mean, it, for me personally, I love the inner ears. I can really geek out and I just love talking about it. And they're fascinating. They are so fascinating. And so I want to break it down again so like people can uh, can learn in step-by-step -step chunks. But so tinnitus sounds are any sounds that are happening within a person's inner world that nobody else can hear. Okay, so the sounds right. yeah. not coming from the outside world. They're sounds that are coming somehow from the eardrum or the little ear bones or the cochlea or the nerve fibers. There's a pathway somewhere that's producing an internal sound that could be static or toning or rumbling or roaring or popping. And most people will hear tinnitus from time to time. So it's completely normal and healthy. In some people, that becomes uh, really distracting, significantly disturbing, and that's when they can be seeking support with people like myself or Miriam for tinnitus therapy and retraining. Then from there, you've got hyperacusis, which is in not being able to tolerate sounds and you're hearing normal everyday sounds, but your body's going into this kind of reaction like, no, I don't want this and that can lead to people kind of blocking out sounds and rejecting sounds, but not only rejecting sounds, rejecting a whole heap of life, including conversations, interactions, social activities. So it's this, it's taking it to a new level. It's a, it's a different um, scenario. And then the triple TS tonic tensor tympani syndrome. That's where we have these amazing little bones, or I could get this wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong, Miriam, but we've got the, the muscles and tendons that are holding together our middle ear system and part of our, would you want to That's explain right. it? That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and so there's, if you think about having a spasm in your elbow or your shoulder or your jaw, it's no different, but in the inner ear, it's so, so tiny and minuscule. And perhaps the best, the way I might explain it, Joey, Go ahead. I'm often saying to my clients that 
our sense of hearing is quite unique. You know, mm -hmm. if we don't want to see something, we can close our eyes, we mm -hmm. can turn our head, we can cover our eyes and peek through our fingers. But with our hearing, there is no filtering until sound reaches the brain. Mm. So that the function of the ear is to get sound to the brain and all the filtering in the brain takes place subconsciously. So we all um, subconsciously evaluate the sounds in our environment. And at any one point, we can only pay attention to one sound. So it makes sense that the brain is determining out of all the sounds you're hearing simultaneously, which sounds you should pay attention to. And of course, that's very unique to each individual. So a sound, once it's um, deemed important, is sent to a part of the brain where we actually notice it. And when it goes through that process, not only does it become noticeable, it gets boosted in volume somewhat. Gets so prioritised. That's right. We've got all this subconscious filtering of sound going on. Um, and we all do this, but we've buried it. So we don't know that we're doing it. And when I'm explaining this to people, I'll use the example, and this is, I'm certain, used quite widespread, um, that imagine you're in your kitchen and your fridge motor kicks in. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a sudden sound, and we will always be primed to turn and respond to a sudden sound. Now, it's such a common domestic sound that you're not going to be thinking consciously, gee, the fridge has come on. But subconsciously, the part of the brain that's evaluating the importance of sounds will be making that judgment call. And um, most people then, because it is not a particularly important sound, once it's first noticed, a minute or two later, people are no longer noticing it. It's However, out. Yeah, that's right. It's not lost to us, though, because if we wanted to, we could choose to stand next to the fridge and listen for it. So we can pull the sound into our conscious awareness by focusing on it. So we're doing this all the time. And this is how people can live on a noisy road or next to a railway line or under a flight path. You Sooner know, or later, their brain just stops noticing. It doesn't mean they're not hearing. Absolutely. Like I've even been out for um, a, a meal with a friend, let's say, who, who in a city, so it's loud and I'm not used to that. And there's a railway trains passing. And in the beginning, it's like, wow, it's so noisy here. But by the time I'm eating and talking and drinking and just, you know, doing what you do at a dinner, I completely forget about the noise. It, it's, it's filtered all the way into the back of my conscious awareness. And all I'm doing is interacting with my friends. So my brain has really cleverly and sophisticated been able to say, okay, that's no threat. That's no big deal. It's not important. It's not helpful. And I can focus on the conversation of enjoying my friend's company and eating the food. And yeah, I think exactly. this is really the process that clients with tinnitus and um, and these these hearing conditions are learning how to retrain that filter. And That's right. yeah. coming back to that little muscle and tendons in the middle ear, which yeah. is the tonic tim um, tonic tensor tympani syndrome. I wanted to say that there is a physical reaction that happens around our stapedius muscle that, that, that when we hear loud sounds, it kicks in and it goes, oh, that was loud, oh, that was loud, and it happens in both ears and it's absolutely natural and these are our acoustic reflexes. That's and right. For some people, that becomes overactive and it's fighting and fighting and it, and it can be a physical pain that people report. So do you want to feed in on a bit yeah, more about that physical side? When um, we have these two middle ear muscles, the stapedial muscle attached to the stapes bone and the mm -hmm. tensor tympani muscle, which has a tendon attaching 
to the malleus bone, which is sitting on the eardrum. Mm -hmm. Now, the function of those two muscles is to tighten up in response to loud sound. The yeah. idea being that that stiffens the little middle bones and protects the inner ear from copying that full blast of sound. Now, each of those muscles works independently of the other with slightly different triggers. So the stapedial muscle has a purely volume trigger. Mm -hmm. When the sound is loud enough, it will contract. We use this um, diagnostically in audiology. Yes, the reflex the testing. The tympani muscle has a much more subtle trigger. It will contract when we talk, so our voice doesn't sound too boomy in our heads. It will contract, in my experience, and this is a lot of research and clinical observation that's come behind this, it will contract when the brain subconsciously perceives a need to protect the ear. Now, in the case of people with hyperacusis, that would be to sound, external sound, when sound has become a threat. Mm. Um, but you don't have to have hyperacusis to develop triple TS. It's just the sound is pervasive. Um, as I mentioned, the ear is open and all sounds that we hear reach the brain. Mm -hmm. So that um, if people have become threatened by sound, which is what I believe happens with hyperacusis, Mm -hmm. then um, every time they hear a sound that's perceived as a threat, that muscle will involuntarily contract. Mm -hmm. And that can become a syndrome in that it contracts frequently or sometimes all the time. And there's a whole set of physical symptoms that come with that which are very subtle and are not generally picked up. A lot of people the... would report jaw issues. Is that, do you see a well, lot of that in clinic? That, the... the Triple TS can develop, um, in my, in, in, as I consider it, in a primary pathway when the brain perceives I need to protect that ear. Yep. But it can also develop secondary to jaw joint stress. Yeah. And of course, these things are quite connected. You know, people who are mm. stressed by sound with hyperacusis can hold a lot of that stress in their jaw. And then yeah. you're going to get the same symptoms, um, yeah. perhaps from two different pathways. So uh, I just want to want to say something there for those of you listening. It's really normal to want to be healthy and to want to be safe, and to be living your life kind of going, "Oh, I'm nervous, and this is worrying me, and I'm a bit upset by this." It's super normal to clench your jaw, to tense the neck muscles, to shrug the shoulders. Like these are all normal patterns of holding and fight, flight, freeze. None of that makes you abnormal. In fact, it means you have a very healthy anxiety response. And in some of these conditions, your vigilance or your anxiety uh, coping and protective mechanisms are actually too active. So if anything, it's like we need to say to the body, you're doing a great job. In fact, you're doing too much of a good job and you can really ease off and go on a holiday there because this is safe. And so it's about re-educating what's actually dangerous and what's really, truly safe because we do need to protect ourselves. And like I said before, if, if there are real life threats, whether it be walking in front of a bus or having explosions nearby or, you know, we need to have these protective mechanisms and muscles working, but we also need to know when we can relax them and go back to normal. So it's, it's not about never having these, these physi physiological behaviours or actions. It's about normalising them and, and having them be in service to our health and well-being. And so these conditions can often get 
really blown out because they're invisible, they can be neglected, they can be poorly diagnosed, and people can end up getting kind of dismissed or shifted into um, God knows where, but any psychiatric things and all sorts. So it's really important if you're resonating with any of this material Miriam's talking about, to give yourself a cuddle and let yourself know that you're normal and it's okay to have this reaction to sound or this tightness in your jaw or this funny action around your eardrum with the tonic tensor tympani. It's not your fault and there is support out there and the brain is so clever and so robust, it can reverse a lot of what it's learned and it can unlearn it and you can go back to normal and it can be a process of figuring out how to do that. But I just want to plant that hope out there and, and certainly just... Um, I hate to think that people listen to this thinking like, oh, no, no, no. You know, if it's subconscious, it's subconscious. You know, you've got to go into that and help help support the brain to reset. So back to you. Back, back Absolutely. To you. I mean, I think that, that the um, uh, when people have these physical symptoms in response to sound with hyperacusis, it's very easy to think I'm being damaged. And um, having an overactive tensor tympani muscle will not cause damage. Um, it is a, the body's way of trying to protect, but it is not going to cause harm or damage. The other point, I think, is that any small changes in the pathway of sound through the middle ear to the inner ear are really noticeable. Mm. So people do notice the effect of triple TS, but the doctors can't see it easily or measure it. So we can't objectively um, evaluate for it. And for that reason, when I'm seeing anybody who has any form of sound intolerance, I want to try and understand their story in great detail to perhaps help them lay bare the threat that might be at the basis of, of all of this mm. and to try and deconstruct and unravel and reverse, you know, using issues of neuroplasticity, this response that can become established and certainly um, in some cases can escalate. I think the um, interesting thing for me is that uh, this understanding of Triple TS comes from work that was done in, uh, in Australia identifying acoustic shock. Now, acoustic shock is a situation where people uh, have um, are exposed to a sudden unexpected loud sound nearby mm. that causes some fairly strong physical symptoms that have been attributed to triple TS as well as perhaps contractions of the stapedial muscle in that moment. And they can be unpleasant and deeply frightening and that can start off a chain of events that mm. um, can mean that those symptoms become persistent and this is how triple TS was perhaps latched onto as an explanation for these very consistent, repeatable symptoms occurring in person after person with acoustic shock. Now, when I came across this concept of triple TS, it resonated for me because I'd been seeing these symptoms in my tinnitus and hyperacusis clients yeah, already. Do you want to list a couple of those common symptoms that you see in people um, who've gone through yeah, a sensation of, Yep, sure. Sorry to talk over the top of you, Joe. Um, a sensation of blockage in the ears is the most mm -hmm. common one. Pain, and the pain can sometimes be a dull ache and sometimes it can be a sharp stabbing pain. Mm -hmm. um, there can be symptoms of muffled hearing, um, distorted hearing, 
mild vertigo sometimes, um, but probably the most common ones are pressure and pain. It can also generate tinnitus. The tinnitus that comes with triple TS um, can be of a sort of rhythmic, ticking, mm. cyclical nature um, and or a sort of a, a low-frequency rumble or engine-type noise people describe it as sometimes. So not yeah. everybody gets all the symptoms and sometimes people just get one or two of them. And... Um, Naturally, we have to make absolutely certain there is no other physical cause for these symptoms. Yeah. We I, might I, make a default diagnosis of triple TS. Yes. So I just wanted to bring forwards there that a low rumbling, roaring tinnitus sound is often reported in people who have many S conditions. Yes. So that, that can get confusing. And when there is pulsing um, tinnitus sounds or distorted or muffling sounds, it's pretty important that you make sure you have a qualified audiologist test your hearing comprehensively and potentially that you talk to an ear, nose and throat specialist and even get an MRI scan because we really want to check that everything's healthy before we dive into these diagnoses. Generally speaking, people who are diagnosed with tinnitus, hyperacusis, misophonia or acoustic shock disorders will have had comprehensive diagnosis. So please don't use this uh, YouTube interview to self-diagnose yourself. It's a complicated process. But we want you to know that for these conditions, you will often have normal hearing and your inner ear, as far as we can tell, is healthy. Your middle ear, as far as we can tell, is healthy. So at that physical level, the doctors and audiologists and specialists will be telling you you've got this beautiful anatomy and we can't really understand why you're hearing or feeling what you're feeling. So it's not that there's been actual damage, it's more that there's been a shock. And then at that, you know, the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual layers that are working with all, within all of us, the brain has somehow latched on to believe that this is not good, this is a massive threat, I need to do something about it, and it ramps up all the priority and the neuroplasticity changes that happen in that decision lead to these chronic fluttering muscles of the um, tonic, um, the triple TS and the ASD, acoustic shock disorder. So it's, it's, it's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual kind of interlayered process. And as we're alluding to, this stuff is reversible once you get that understanding of what's happening within your body and the emotional piece, and often we can lean in and completely change the way we relate to ourselves, relate to our body, and of course, relate to sounds and relate to the world. Because I think the worst case scenario is that people become restricted, isolated, quit their jobs, start losing relationships or friendships, and, and life just caves in to be nothing more than you know, this, this symptomatology where every day is about symptoms. And it's so important that if you do have tinnitus or hyperacoustis or acoustic shock, that you very gently and lovingly and as in whatever way you can support yourself to reach back out into the world, make connections, make friendships, find a coach or mentor or a therapist, find people who guide you to re-engage with what lights you up and what makes you feel safe because that's going to teach the brain, okay, false alarm, I can rejig the filters now and go back to normal. So it's very important you, you reach back out into the world and retrain the brain gently how to do that. 
And as Miriam is going to describe, this does not have to be a painful process. So do you want to give a little description of maybe some recovery stories that you've seen that could you could share? Yeah, look, I think the the idea is, as Joey has pointed out, that you gently nudge mm. your boundaries of tolerance. Mm. Um, I think there are various strategies that we can use to make that a little bit easier. And um, I think it is important as best you can to keep your lifestyle horizons broad as possible. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you do have hyperacusis, maybe that's not the time to go and see a heavy metal band. Oh. <laughs> anyway, but I, I, what I get my um, clients to do is to um, people with hyperacusis um, and acoustic shock. I mean, with acoustic shock, it's an instantaneous reaction to a sudden, unexpected, loud sound. Now, for some Which people, is, that might be the end of it. Yeah, um, so that, that's but, appropriate and normal. Yeah, exactly. Like, and um, but if hyperacusis develops as a result of that intensely upsetting and threatening experience, then things can linger. So it then becomes a hyperacusis management scenario. And what I ask all my patients to do is to rank their environments into where they feel safe, mm. where they feel unsafe, and where they feel moderately unsafe, because they're going to do something slightly different in each of those environments. Where they feel safe, I suggest they do nothing. Um, where they feel unsafe, I think it is reasonable to use ear protection of some sort, even though it's often said with hyperacusis you shouldn't be doing that. Um, I don't agree. I think I would rather see my clients go into a shopping centre briefly with earplugs in rather than thinking I can never go into a shopping centre. You know what? It's so individual and it's like it's so important that for you guys out there going through these conditions that you pause and ask yourself every moment, what do I need to support me right now? And if in that moment earplugs are going to serve you, use them. Like that's going to help yeah. you be the best. First. It's, not a, it's not a textbook generic always use earplugs. It's like feel into it. If you need that right now to help you feel safe and yummy and cuddly and all loved up and happy, use earplugs. But it, that might be just one hour a day or here and there. So you've got to be dynamic with how you use your body. And I would say the first place you need to feel safe is in your body. That's sitting in your body, closing your eyes and actually being present with you, learning to make a home and a safe place here in your vehicle. That is the challenge, especially for tinnitus clients. And that's the work I do with clients is helping them love their body and be kind to what's happening in here. Cause then that will also change how you view some of these difficult situations Miriam's talking about and going out into the outer world. Because you've got to take your body with you anyway, right? So if you're in that supermarket, you need to be first safe in yourself and second safe um, in the external. So it's... it's I, I think that's, that's quite true. And I try and encourage people to, to identify that sense of safety and if they can, to make that portable. And, um, and that brings me to what I suggest people do when they feel moderately unsafe as far as sound exposure is concerned. Because I'd rather people didn't wear earplugs at that time. What I suggest people do is they use sound therapeutically mm -hmm. and they hide into their sound. Now, um, certainly in, in, in well, world, worldwide, really, 
people are plugged into listening to something when they're in public transport, um, walking around, you know, the city of Melbourne. I see people wearing headphones or earbuds. Mm. People are using sound to detach from an environment they don't have to engage with and to go into a little bubble of mm. auditory privacy. So we have the potential to be able to use sound to instantaneously detach ourselves from an environment that has become threatening. Yeah. So what I get my clients to do is to sling headphones around their neck, have some sort of sound that they find pleasant, that is not necessarily interesting, mm. and have that sound just audible through those headphones around their neck. They completely ignore it until they hear a sound they find difficult to tolerate. And then they can use that concept of withdrawing into an auditory bubble of privacy so mm. that the sound they use becomes like a shield or barrier between themselves and the sound externally. So they have an immediate safety mechanism in an environment that has become unsafe because of that sound. So I often say to people, imagine you're a peanut and your sound is your shell and you're sitting inside that safe and secure. Mm. Now, really, obviously, you will still hear the external sound that's caused that threat response, but you have the opportunity to create, through imagery, some distance and detachment from it. And it does sound a little bit woolly, but it really works. It helps people feel safer in what they have decided are potentially moderately unsafe situations. And so, a lot of it's about creating boundaries and also regaining some form of control back. That's right. I've got a lot of clients, whether this be with vertigo or tinnitus, who when they go into those difficult and challenging moments or situations and they get a fright and they're like, oh, oh my God, it's happening. You know, they hold themselves, like physically put your hand on your body and redefine your boundaries, get back into this vehicle and tell yourself what you need to hear. Like tell yourself you're doing a great job. Tell yourself you're brave. Tell yourself that it's going to be okay. There's no physical damage, false alarm. Like in, in many ways, I really think the best outcome is that you guys with these conditions, and I know I've had pretty bad tinnitus in my past. I don't know if you've experienced it yourself, Miriam. But what you have to learn to be your own best friend and to be your own mentor and to be your own coach because when it happens at 3 a.m. or you get an upset, you know, flying from here to there in life, you have to be able to come back to ground zero, self-soothe and feel at peace. And I would have to say that probably for all of my clients, regardless of their diagnosis, and there's oodles of diagnoses out there, one of the most common things people want to feel is inner peace. They want to feel inner peace. And that really is achievable and attainable if you make it your goal and resetting the brain to fire those inner peace neurons in abundance. So instead of having, having them sleeping in the back of your brain and feeling agitated all the time, you want to be able to on call fire up that inner peace neural pathway so you can get more and more neurons telling you you're safe, you're fine, you're grounded, you're not falling over, there's no loud threat, your ears are safe, and you can get that, genuinely cultivate that sense of feeling at peace in yourself. And I think it's very important that people with these conditions understand that that's possible 
And it's something we train the brain to do. And it's kind of no different to learning the piano. You know, you just have to practice your scales and you've got to be doing it on repeat so the brain can automate it and you can gain more control over the process instead of being victim to circumstance. You're suddenly a key player. And, you know, for want of better words, you become the coach telling everyone yeah. what to do. I think I think that's true. I mean, certainly with tinnitus, um, it is something that has to become, um, you know, in, in everybody's unique way, mm. integrated into, well, this is how my body works, mm -hmm. um, rather than seen as an alien intrusion that mm. people have to suffer or, or endure. Mm. And the only way um, that any sort of acceptance can be achieved, and that's a difficult word for people with tinnitus who are distressed by it, but is the first step is acknowledging that this is something that is produced within one's body rather than an external something that's been lobbed on you yes. to have yes. to endure and suffer. It's so I think with, with hyperacusis and acoustic shock, we do have, we are dealing with quite a complex set of circumstances. And while the it can be unravelled, um, Sometimes it is a slow process. Um, for me, certainly, I want to know the pathway of, you know, what was the initial perhaps triggering factor and how did that a pattern of escalation occur because we can't hope to unravel it unless we understood, understand how that might have developed in the first place. Um, if only we could tell the brain not to be threatened, but um, it does... Well, there are there are some tricks you can do actually and proprioception is one of the quickest ways to tell your brain it's safe which is using the touch pathways because that part of our brain that's fight flight danger safe it doesn't speak english so you can't talk to it linguistically it you know no. it, it's it's a lizard brain it doesn't have the capacity of english so we need to find different ways of talking to that part of the brain and that's really essential for neuroplasticity and for resetting and rewiring the, the any pathway regardless of your condition. Look, absolutely. And I mean, my role primarily is to evaluate and explain what's going on to people. Yeah. Um, and because I think that is an absolutely essential first step. Um, particularly once you've got situations like um, um, triple TS symptoms coming into it. So. It, it's about um, a very detailed understanding of people's individual stories and trying to, um, you know, in the case of tinnitus, trying to identify what are the factors with this person that may have stymied a natural process of tinnitus habituation. In mm. the case of hyperacusis, what is it that has caused sound to become a threat? Um, in the case of acoustic shock, it is supporting people who are experiencing a threat response to a very distressing acoustic incident. Mm. Misophonia is a slightly different situation yeah. again. Talk, talk a little bit um, about misophonia. That would be interesting. So misophonia Just is an briefly. aversive um, response to sound. It's also a form of sound intolerance. It, it has been redefined, I think, by people with the problem in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, how I view it is... It is uh, an intrusion response. I, I'm, I hate that sound. I don't want it in my space. I resent it intruding in my space. I, um, uh, you know, find it offensive or disgusting, and it's often to do with eating, breathing, sniffing noises and others. 
and typically uh, in people we share a space with, so the people we most love, which is what creates all sorts of distress. The um, people with that aversive reaction to sound tend not to be frightened the sounds will damage them in some way. They just hate them. Mm. So people with misophonia tend not to have triple TS symptoms. Mm. It is, of course, possible for people to have both misophonia and hyperacusis. Uh, so, again, my job is, as a therapist is to try and tease out what um, might be going on for that individual, whether it is uh, in my in the way I define these terms, hyperacusis and or misophonia, and to explain how the brain, again, is, is subconsciously evaluating sounds into what is important and what is not important. Can I just clarify, with misophonia, is it generally sounds coming from other peoples or outside, or could somebody actually hate the sound they're making while they eat? So it's their own eating sounds uh, making them angry and, and irritated. Look, I think the... the it, it is generally exp sounds made by other people. It's not just eating, breathing, sniffing type noises. Yeah, I, I think it can be footsteps. It can be all sorts. That's right. I mean, I consider a misophonia reaction can also apply to people that have a very strong reaction to the neighbours playing music or, or, or not controlling their dog barking. Toilets um, flushing, doors, doors exactly. cupboards, cupboards closing. So, yeah. So with a lot of these conditions and, and, and descriptions, I hate people getting bogged down in diagnosis because sometimes we can become our diagnosis and that's completely debilitating and it's not helpful at all. So I want to invite everybody to hold diagnoses loosely. It's so incredibly important to understand your body, to understand your brain, to understand the emotional con uh, context of these situations and the moral of the story is the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual aspects of your body are all at play here. And if you're hearing a door sound or footsteps or dogs barking or somebody eating an apple and you're starting to get that angry or shaming or, you know, highly emotive response, the question is not what's going on with them. The question would be, why am I feeling this way and what emotional supports do I need right now? because that misophonia reaction, that the sound intolerance is really the deeper part of the body, the soul, the emotions. It's, it's yearning for support. It's, it's asking for attention. It's asking for what it needs. And sometimes the body doesn't speak English, so it talks to us through our symptomatology. And it's really important that you go in and you nurture yourself because there's a reason your body's doing that. It will have a very good reason why it's annoyed with that sound. But sometimes the reason stems way back, you know, way back into our psyche and our psychology that's really got nothing to do with the door anymore. So you may need to get therapeutic support with that if it's, if it's not coming to you um, and those insights aren't coming. But to help you feel at ease in your body and in the world around you, it's very important that you listen to the wisdom of your symptoms. But I love to call them sensations. just makes it a little bit... Uh, less abnormal so just to listen to these sensations and say what are you teaching me okay so that door is really bugging me I want to run away a mile but what's a different way I could look at this and why am I edgy today why am I edgy right now 
And I don't know what your perspective on this is, Miriam, but I know often with the conditions I'm working with and people I'm working with, early intervention really helps. So it's like the earlier you can get in and understand this and move towards proactive treatments and using neuroplasticity and getting the emotional and self-kindness bits, you know, really in play, we see better results and um, quicker results. But have you got a perspective on that? Do you think? Yeah. Oh, look, I think I think that's true. I mean, certainly um, uh, with regards to, um, say, acoustic shock, I think it's very helpful if people can get some advice straight away because people yeah. do then typically become frightened that their ability to tolerate sound has, be, has collapsed in some way and that they're being damaged. So I think having a good understanding of exactly what's going on is really helpful. The problem is there are so few people who specialise in these areas. You know, there really are. Just can people contact you via the internet? Do you have...? Um, yes, they can. There's, there, there's, uh, there is some information on our clinic website. I'll put the link, I'll add the link to this, but it is deneenwestcottmore.com.au to get in touch with all of the amazing useful resources that Miriam and her team provide. But I would say I'm writing a book at the moment on healing for vertigo and tinnitus and I'm just in the section of, you know, what tests do people need to get and what's the diagnosis process? And I'm a really big believer that endless testing is exhausting and expensive and not always going to give you good bang for your buck. Sometimes you'll go through a million tests and, and, and not really get any answers or feel any better. And tests don't help you heal, right? Tests give you information about what's happening in your body. And the question is, what test do you really need to get the reassurance that's going to help you move forwards? And I would suggest a hearing test is non-invasive, simple and quick. And that is something I would recommend most people get. And if you are sensitive to sound, you can ask audiologists to do an ascending hearing test, which will be much more gentle for you if, if you're experiencing um, pain and trauma around sound. You can get gentle hearing tests done, so please ask your audiologist to do that for you. And some of the other really simple and easy things to do is talk to your doctor, make sure there's nothing wrong with your whole system head to toe, and probably if you're in significant distress, you'd want to talk to an ear specialist or neurologist to look at the brain and the ears and just tick those boxes and sleep well at night. But once you've, you know, you've had your hearing tested and you've learned about the health of your ear, you've spoken to your doctor about your general medical health, spoken to the ear doctor about the anatomy here and potentially even had an MRI scan to check that there's nothing happening in the pathways between the ears and the brain. I think from that place onwards, it's important you choose who you trust because the endless search for answers is honestly expensive, exhausting, and it, it does not help neuroplasticity at all. So do you want to add anything to that, Miriam, in terms of what, what process you would recommend for people to help them get to this place of healing and reassurance? I think it's, it's important to understand that most people, certainly when people become sound intolerant, the intuitive response is, well, shouldn't I be vigilant? You know, it, it, it makes sense. I, I, I'm, I'm worried that sounds will cause me pain. Um, I'm really annoyed. Um, I'm enraged by sounds. Shouldn't I be mm. vigilant? Well, what that does is it does send a message to the subconscious that those sounds are threatening. It reinforces the threat. So yes. once people have been fully 
medically um, investigated so they can be quite sure that there isn't um, something that requires treatment or, or further investigation. Physically then I think, That's right. Well, then I think the best thing is to keep the focus away as best you can. I mean, this is certainly the case with tinnitus. We know if people listen to their tinnitus, well, it's going to remain front and centre and very prominent. Now, that's not easy to refocus, um, but I think it is an important thing, a skill that does need to be developed. What I usually suggest to my clients is when they become aware of their tinnitus or they become aware of an external sound that is threatening, absolutely acknowledge that. You know, you're not trying to ignore the elephant in the room. But at that point, that is as much focus as you need to give, either your tinnitus or the external sound, or in the that's, case of phonia, your trigger. That's like sound. classic mindfulness, actually. That's almost like that's basic that's mindfulness. Acknowledge what's there and see what else is there. Like, keep looking. Let, let your mind be open and searching for more. It's like the tinnitus is one tiny little part in your life. There's so much more. Keep exploring. Keep open. And I think chasing joy, following pleasure, finding your hobbies, your passions, your connections, all of those things will help you as well because it will just keep all of those, the, the symptoms will end up becoming boring and uninteresting and your brain will filter them out until it, they're you know, no longer even perceived. They can certainly be completely rewired. So I think it's, it's, it's more than the tinnitus. It's like how do you expand your life? to become more and and that's where i see the greatest outcomes in clients through this expansion of of discovery and self-care that's right and for a lot of people these are not necessarily things that they've had to explore before or thought about a great deal and that can be the gift sometimes there's a great gift in these little traumas and there's many many people who i've seen go through just beautiful recoveries and they've said joey my relationship to myself and my overall well-being and my happiness they're like i'm more relaxed now i'm better than ever so it's like if you had to rewind the clock they they can see that it's brought some some value to their lives it's actually improved their quality of life because they've gone through it and they've understood it and they've put the work in like it's not miracles it doesn't fall off a tree these guys have put in hours and hours and hours of home practice, self-kindness, written exercises, physical exercises, you name it, they've explored it all. And it can be, I usually recommend people have at least a three-month commitment for a neuroplasticity program, but realistically, it can certainly be over years. You know, keep learning, keep changing, keep rewiring. It's, it's just so dynamic. That's right. And once you understand how to do that and why you should do that, um, it does require determination um, and commitment. But well, yeah, and, and I think the outcomes become your reward. So that's right. That's because right. you feel yeah. better, you want to do more of it. So it's it, you then begin to feed a positive loop of healing, instead of the vicious cycle of symptoms and failure and symptoms and shaming and symptoms and feeling abnormal, feeling wrong. So once you shift into seeking the pleasure and the joy, and your purpose and your passions and whatever it is you're cultivating, but let's say it's inner peace, the more you contact that inner peace within yourself, the more you want to. And that's when the loop starts changing. Yeah, that's true. And I think certainly with with tinnitus, I mean, I do ask my clients, when you are really engaged with something, Mm -hmm. there's a bit of sound around you, do you notice the tinnitus? Now, for a lot of people, 
at mm. those brief moments, they don't notice it. And at that point, uh, their brain, this, that sound, that tinnitus sound is not important to the brain. The brain has pushed it back. Exactly. Um, so that's the sign the filters are working for that little right, moment right. in time. And, and it's, it's um, with, um, uh, and some people with severe tinnitus don't experience that. But if they know how to create the situation where that can occur, that can be very rewarding because those small moments um, give an opportunity for um, um, those moments to become expanded. With, exactly. with hyperacusis, once the brain has become threatened by sounds, um, it may have the potential to become threatened by more sound. But in my experience, when people really understand how the brain works as far as this is concerned, that escalation stops. Well, we've and got... Yeah, I mean, we probably have to end the call in a moment, but we have this yeah. amazing prefrontal cortex, which is quite unique to humans. We've got all this amazing intelligence and foresight in the front of the head here and it's this part of our brain that can think things through and plan a holiday and use a computer and do a spreadsheet this is our conscious thinking brain this part of the brain can go back into the lizard brain that's going i'm in danger i'm in danger and it can actually say to that lizard brain you're okay you're fine and so we have this amazing capacity to start switching the mechanisms and and using our conscious to actually start to educate and change the subconscious. And so these are all skills people can learn and I just highly encourage you to find resources. I want to encourage you to visit deneenwescottmore.com.au to read and learn more about Miriam and there's, there's a bunch of articles and useful information that you guys offer on your website. Reach out to Miriam if you want to talk more and learn. I'm sure she'll find a way to accommodate you in whatever way she can and do you have any parting words of wisdom for people Miriam who might be kind of going wow this is new for me it's blown my mind well I think really it's tapping into what you're saying about neuroplasticity the brain can be retrained yeah um, these things are not inevitable people do not need to stay stuck in that mm. point of distress whether it's to the internal or external sound yeah the only way you can heal in my experience is if you believe and you have to believe in yourself and you have to back yourself because nobody else can change your neurons for you. We can offer you all the therapy and all the wisdom we have and all the knowledge, but none of that is going to actually go into your brain and change your neurons. So you have to believe in yourself. You have to back yourself. You have to want this. And it's from that desire that changes really start to happen. And it is a transformation. So for those of you with either vertigo symptoms or any form of tinnitus, please feel free to visit seekingbalance.com.au. I have plenty of resources and there's a free body scan you can get started so you can begin neuroplasticity straight away. And I also have a free masterclass for vertigo and tinnitus, which is really useful to watch, not just once but a few times because I think it is hard to get our head around these cycles and changing the paradigm of how we view the problem and how we view the solutions. So it's not about focusing on symptoms anymore. It's about focusing on the holistic aspects of your recovery and well-being, so that your brain can actually use neuroplasticity. So seekingbalance.com.au, I have plenty of programs for anyone who's interested in neuroplasticity and the healing side. And for information about tinnitus, hyperacusis, misophonia, acoustic shock disorder, 
or Triple TS, I really highly recommend that you read anything that Miriam has offered the world and get in touch with her if you feel called to do so. So thank you so much for your time, Miriam. This has been a great conversation. I really hope it reaches all the people who need to hear it. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. So it's a bye for now and I hope everybody out there heals. That's what I want for the world. Bye. <laughs>